Please turn in God's Word to Romans chapter 5, and we'll read verses 15 through 19. Romans chapter 5, verses 15 through 19. We want to examine today what the Catechism teaches about the inescapability or the inevitability of our misery apart from Jesus Christ. Now, we need to remember we are in that first section entitled Misery in German, Elend, which simply means that we are alienated from God, alienated from his joy, his life, his hope, his salvation, and thus in a state of misery. And the cause of this misery is not, does not lie with God, it lies with us, all right? <clears throat> Romans 5, beginning at verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, gracious God, help us to understand not only, Lord, your grace given to us in Jesus Christ, that the work of the one who was appointed as the head of his people, Father, in the covenant of redemption, has come to undo the effects of the disobedience and the sin of the first man, Adam. And Father, considering Jesus Christ, help us, Lord, to consider Adam, to consider that what he has done has plunged the entire human race in great misery. Misery, Father, that is deeply embedded in our nature a misery that cries out for a salvation, not of our own making, but a salvation that is found only in Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord. We ask, Lord, hear us now. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> in our day, it has become commonplace for many leaders in society to lower standards in many industries for the sake of greater inclusion. Uh, this is not anything that is unknown. It's an open secret that entry exams for medical school, for law school, for uh, the work of air traffic controlling, uh, all of those entry exams have been lowered. The standards have been lowered. And you see this starting even in public schools. I remember uh, a, a conversation or a series of conversations I had when I taught in Manhattan in a high school, and I was told by my assistant principal that I was failing too many kids. I was failing about a third of the class, and that, that was just unacceptable. We can't have that. 
Well, we're going to find out as a society soon enough uh, the hard way when planes start crashing into each other because of a deficiency of skills, when bridges start collapsing because of faulty engineering, that lowering standards for the sake of inclusion has life-threatening limitations. And when it comes to God, you see, the sinful desire to lower God's moral standard for the sake of greater inclusion has eternal and damning consequences. God requires perfect, personal, perpetual obedience to his law. He requires perfect obedience. Not imperfect, not 80% obedience, perfect obedience. He requires personal obedience. You must obey God's law. You cannot have someone else obey God's law for you. You are called to obey God's law. And you are called to obey God's law perpetually. For the, for the entirety of your life, from the minute you're conceived to the minute you're born to the minute you die, whether it be 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 80 years of life, you are to obey God's law. Perfect, personal, perpetual obedience to his perfect law. And he requires, God requires this joyful conformity to his divine will from a perfect and whole heart. And this is, you see, where the catechism picks up in question and answer nine. We see the exacting requirements of God's law, and we think God is unjust to keep his standards high. And so the, the, the catechism voices a common objection that perhaps we may have, that perhaps we have heard others voice to us. Doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? And the catechism says, no, no. And there are simply two reasons I want to point out for this. If God, first of all, were to accept something less than perfect obedience, then God would not be holy. God would not be righteous. God would not be just. God would not be God, in other words. And this world would suffer a complete moral collapse. Because what we would be saying is, if God grades on a curve, right? If God says, you know, I'm going to take the top 25% of the human race, those, those top 25% of the good people in this world. What God is actually saying is that a little bit of murder, a little bit of hatred, a little bit of violence, a little bit of lies, a little bit of adultery is okay with him. And what kind of world would this be if that were the case, but a complete hell? No, if God were to accept something less than perfect obedience, God would not be God. But there's a second reason, and that one is given in the catechism. The catechism answers, is God unjust? No. God created man with the ability to keep the law. Man, however, at the instigation of the devil, in willful disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. God hasn't changed, in other words. The standard of God's moral character has not changed. The standard of what God requires and obliges mankind to do and how to live hasn't changed. So what has changed? Mankind has changed. God gave, in the very beginning of time, mankind the gifts of obedience to God. 
The gift of loving God with a pure and a whole heart. The gift of righteousness, holiness, truth, and knowledge. Those component parts that make up the image of God, which we considered last week. But what did Adam do? Adam trashed all of those things. And in Adam, we did as well. The catechism says very pithily, Adam robbed himself and all of these gifts because of the instigation of the devil. Consider the absurdity of what has happened. Or even in our day, you, you begin to see how absurd this is and how life-threatening it is to lower standards. Imagine an airline pilot who plucks his eyes out, he cannot see anymore, and yet demands that the standard for airline pilots be lowered. He, he's going to say, I can't see, and I demand to be able to fly this plane even though I can't see with my eyes anymore. It's unfair. Change the law so I can continue to fly airplanes. And he would rightly be told, no. No. The law cannot change. What's changed is not the law. The injustice does not lie with the law. The injustice, if there is any, lies with you. You should not have deprived yourself of your own sight. And so it is with mankind and Adam. What did we have in Adam? We had sight. We could see, but we plucked out our eyes. We had obedience, but we chose to become disobedient. We had life, but we rather chose death. And now Adam... In the beginning, in the garden, called the Son of God, leaves God, squanders his inheritance, and becomes a prodigal son. And as a prodigal son, he has children, he has offspring outside of the garden in misery. And it is no, we, we cannot claim Adam's inheritance, his former inheritance, as ours because he abandoned it. Notice what the text says in God's word, Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 15. And, and here there are in each of these verses a couplet, that is a pair, telling us what happened to us in Adam and then what happens to us in Jesus. Our focus today, this morning, is simply on the first part of that couplet. What happens to us in Adam? Look at verse 15. For if many died through one man's trespass, one man's sin. Verse 16. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. You see, in Adam's sin, all were made sinners. God's universal condemnation and judgment fell upon all men. In Adam's sin, death entered in through that one man, and death spread to all men, and now death reigns upon all. These are Adam's gifts to his children. This is the inheritance we receive. You want to know what the inheritance is? It's not heaven it's not obedience. It's not a clean and pure heart. That's not what we get when we're conceived and born. What we get is death, condemnation, judgment. 
corruption, sin. All of Adam's children, you and I included, are born in this spiritual squalor, in this poverty and miserable state. And so we want to ask the question, is there injustice in God? And the Bible answers clearly, and the Heidelberg Catechism echoes as well, no, no, there is not injustice in God. If you want to blame someone, do not blame God, but blame Adam. And then we can go ahead and blame ourselves for the world that we've created. Is there injustice in God? No, there is no divine injustice. But secondly, the catechism continues to ask, is there a divine indulgence in God? God is a big Santa Claus, right? God can overlook my sin, right? He's indulgent, right? No, he's not. Remember what man's fall into sin is. Man is inclined to hate God and his neighbor. Man is inclined now from his very moment of conception to pursue all that is evil, dishonorable, harmful. This is man's fundamental disposition to God. And so what is God's fundamental disposition to sinful man? The catechism tells us he is terribly angry with the sin we are born with as well as our actual sins. God is terribly angry. Look at Psalm chapter 5. Just one text here to show this from God's word. Psalm chapter 5. Psalm 5 verses 4, 5, and 6. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. We are all condemned. We are all the object of God's wrath, of God's anger. God, because he is God. God, because he is just and righteous and thrice holy, 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 cannot respond in any other way but with terrible anger and wrath upon our sins. And that's what the catechism tells us. He's terribly angry with our original sin, that is, that which we received from Adam and were born with, and he's angry with us because of our actual sins, that which we commit daily. And how does God deal with us? Apart from Jesus Christ, Apart from redemption, how does God deal with unbelieving man? God deals with our sin now and in eternity. Punishing our sin now, we receive a certain measure of the consequences of sin. And in eternity, unbelieving man, if God does not save him, if God does not change his heart, if that man does not turn to God in repentance, will receive full payments. The Bible says the wages, the payment you get at the end of your day, at the end of your life, the wages of sin is death. Death, separation from God, conscious and everlasting 
torment. It's one punishment from God that begins now and continues on into eternity. It's the one wrath of God, as Romans 1 says, being poured out on man because of his ungodliness and unrighteousness. Is God indulgent? We know he's not unjust, but is God indulgent? No, he is not. The biblical logic, simply put, is this, as the catechism in answer 10 concludes, the Bible says, cursed is everyone who does not obey God's law. I have not obeyed God's law. I, therefore, am cursed. But then thirdly, is there divine incompatibility? Is there incompatibility in God? The catechism asks in question 11, but isn't God also merciful? Yes, he's merciful, but he is also just. We might say, God God is just, but I thought God was love. So doesn't God's love cancel out his justice? But the catechism, like scripture, would have us change the emphasis. We don't begin with God's mercy as a given. We begin with God's justice as a given. God is merciful, but he is also just. And here you see what the catechism is telling us are a number of things for us to remember always as we talk with God, as we talk about God's justice and mercy and the way of salvation he has ordained. And the first thing that we need to remember is that we cannot pit God's love against his justice. We cannot pit any one of God's divine attributes against each other. Why? Because God is a perfect harmony of all his attributes. And then secondly, what we're being told here is that divine mercy and grace are undeserved gifts. People of God, we can never demand grace as something we deserve. If people think they deserve grace and You've probably seen and heard and observed unbelieving man demand grace. Then what they're talking about is not grace, but payment. But divine grace can never be payment. It is always a gift graciously given by God and can never be demanded because God is under no obligation to be gracious whatsoever. Truth be told, how could we ever say we deserve grace? We've we've been considering this now for a few weeks. How can we ever say we deserve salvation when what we deserve is staring us in the face? What we deserve is hell. What we deserve is God's just condemnation. Then thirdly, catechism points out that man has sinned against God. And something must be done with his sin. Man cannot hide it. Man cannot overlook it. Man's sin condemns him. Again, think of absurd illustrations from our day. It's as if a man committed arson and burned down his neighbor's house. He can't argue, well, you know, my neighbor's a nice guy. Well, that may be well and true. He might be a nice guy but you are still an arsonist and you're still guilty of a crime and you must face well-deserved consequences. 
How much more infinitely true is that of our guilt before God? Everyone loves to talk about God's love. Unbelieving man talks about God's love as something he is entitled to. But he talks about God's love, not because they follow, not because the world follows what God says about his love, but because unbelieving man is enthroned in his sense of self-entitlement. Unbelievers think they deserve to burn down God's house and to burn down God's glory and to get away with it. They are, an unbelieving man is, indulgent, self-entitled, self-exalting, a sinner who magnifies God's love, not because sinners truly love God, but because they love themselves. And yes, and yes, and yes, we want to say, as the catechism puts it, as scripture puts it repeatedly, God is love and God's love is real. But you see, God's love cannot be abstracted out of his nature and made to cancel out all of his other attributes. God's love is a holy love. God's love is a redeeming, undeserving love. God's love is a love that sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins, a love that cleanses us and makes us holy. People of God, if we are to speak truthfully, we must speak not in the first instance about what sinners deserve or think they deserve, rather, but what sinners truly deserve. Not God's mercy, but God's justice. God's just condemnation in hell. If we are to speak truthfully, we must not object that God is so just. We should object that God is so merciful if we're going to object. How can it be? How can it be that God, my God, should love me? We should object that he is so merciful to such undeserving sinners, so merciful to a world that rejected him. And it was precisely this world that God so loved. It was to this world that God gave his only son as our mediator and as our redeemer. And this we'll begin to look at next week. For now, let us pray. <clears throat> our Father and our God, we thank you and praise you for your goodness and kindness to us revealing the way of salvation in Jesus Christ, revealing, Father, that, Lord, before we were saved, before you were gracious to us, Lord, we were objects of your wrath and ire and anger. Father, help us more and more to understand this truth. Help us to understand how undeserving we are of such amazing divine grace that, Father, your word would instruct us and that, Father, we would gain knowledge about who we are apart from Christ and about this world and our unbelieving friends and associates and neighbors and family and friends. Father, as they lay without Christ in this world, that we would know that they are under God's divine wrath and condemnation. Father, help us and hear us for these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.